For the past couple of weeks, people have been messaging me saying that they don't understand what is so terrifying about the book so far. In response, I've said that the first four chapters of this book are merely the foundation for the terrifying contents that will follow. With the first four chapters, we established Jung's model of the psyche. With chapter five, we will see Jung try to legitimize his model through the symbol of Jesus Christ. Once his case has been made that Christ is a symbol of the self, we will follow the logical implications of that case. That is where the horror begins. First of all, let us summarize what we learned from the last chapter. In Jung's mind, the self is the state of being that all humans strive for, that apex of perfection, of completeness. That highest state is achieved by integrating unconscious contents into conscious territory. By bringing all the things that we are now into harmony with all the things that we could be, by making the utmost use of all of our strengths and corralling all of our weaknesses. This hypothetical state of being known as the self is symbolized across many religions, but in regards to the Western world, the self is most widely recognized in the symbol of Jesus Christ. Christ represents a totality of a divine or heavenly kind, a glorified man, a son of God, sin macula peccati, unspotted by sin. The reason why Christ has had such sway over billions of people across two millennia is because people recognize the archetype of the self, the person they want to be, in Christ. The reason why people strive for this apex of perfection in Jung's mind goes back to the notion that people are made in the image of God, not as gods, but in the image of God. It is by going through the individuation process of integrating unconscious contents into consciousness that we can eventually become synonymous with the God image, with the self. Before we continue, I need to elaborate on what it is about human beings that makes them in the image of God. How did our religious forefathers come to that conclusion? Jung cites St. Augustine in order to explain what it means to be made in the image of God, and in doing so, Jung simultaneously gives legitimacy to his model of the psyche. Quote, But where man knows himself to be made after the image of God, there he knows there is something more in him than is given to the beasts. According to St. Augustine, it is the power to discern, to distinguish between things, that makes us like God. In other words, the fact that we are conscious, whereas beasts are not, gives human beings that status of being made in God's image. This notion becomes important when we look at the life of Christ and how he went through his own individuation process. Just as human beings have to confront the horrors of the world and themselves, Christ had to do the same, namely with his descent into hell following his crucifixion. Quote, the scope of the integration is suggested by the descensus ad inferos, the descent of Christ's soul to hell, its work of redemption embracing even the dead. The psychological equivalent of this is the integration of the collective unconscious, which forms an essential part of the individuation process. For those of you who have been following this series from the beginning, this should remind you of what was said in chapter 2. In order for the human being to achieve this highest state, it will need to confront the greatest darkness and survive. It is only by confronting this great darkness, symbolized by hell, 
that our inner light can shine its brightest. Jesus achieved his divine status by confronting that darkest part after his crucifixion. Upon doing so, he brought his entire being into perfect balance, being able to transcend death itself. There was no other way that Jesus could have become the symbol of the self unless he triumphed over that darkness. Otherwise, he would not have achieved that completeness. He would not have become the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. Without his darkness, his light would have no dimension. This goes back to the necessity of opposites, as we laid out in the last three chapters. Even the Apostle Paul comments on the necessity of opposites in Romans 7.21. I find then a law that, when I would do good, evil is present within me. Now that we have laid out Jung's hypothesis that Christ symbolizes that perfect union of opposites, and that humans are striving to emulate that perfection through the individuation process, we can now list the various pieces of evidence that support Jung's thesis. First of all, the idea that the union of opposites is a transcendental divine concept isn't actually unique to Christianity. This concept has been symbolized by the likes of the Ouroboros, which you all know as the snake eating its tail. It is the state of being that supposedly existed at the beginning of time, before anything existed. This state is paradoxical, unable to be perceived by human minds. Yet it is the very notion that it is a paradox that makes it transcendental. The union of consciousness and unconsciousness, known as the Jungian self, is also paradoxical, also transcendental. What would you be like? feel like when you reached the apex known as the Jungian self. You can't know. It's a transcendent, impossible concept that is so impossible that supposedly only one person has ever achieved it. Nonetheless, despite this impossibility, we strive towards it, because it is only through the concept of the self that we can reach that eternal state of perfection. To quote John 14:6, No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, if this paradox has been symbolized by the likes of the Ouroboros in the past, how was this paradox symbolized in regards to Christ? Well, get ready to have your mind melt. According to Jung, this paradox was symbolized with the cross. In chapter 5, Jung uses two diagrams of a cross to describe both the dogmatic figure of Christ as well as his psychological conception of the self. As a historical figure, Christ is both unique and unitemporal in the sense that he was a man. However, he was also universal and eternal, being that he was the Son of God. In the second diagram, Christ is symbolized as the union of good and evil, as well as the material and spiritual worlds. Both diagrams symbolize the perfect union of opposites. Now obviously, the question that arises in our mind is why these cross diagrams work so harmoniously with the fact that Christ was crucified on a cross. Moreover, why was Christ crucified between two thieves, one who was repentant and one who was not? Another pair of opposites. Jung would likely suggest that this is an example of another one of his theories commonly known as synchronicity. This concept will be discussed more in chapter 6 and 7. If you'd like to learn more about it now, however, feel free to watch the first five minutes of my video titled Silent Hill Mythology, The Multiple Dimension Theory. 
Now, as I stated at the beginning of this video, we would discuss the terrifying elements of Chapter 5 after we have established that Christ is a symbol of the self. These terrifying elements would be the logical implications that come from Christ being a symbol of the self. So what are those terrifying elements? Well, if Christ is a perfect union of opposites, and opposites must exist in order to give each other dimension, what logically follows is that Christ must have his opposite. Now put aside whether you believe in Christ as your Lord and Savior, or even as a historical person or as a supernatural being. I ask you solely to focus on Christ as a symbol of the self. If we accept that people strive for that apex of development, that state of perfection and completeness symbolized by Christ, one must logically deduce that there is an opposite apex that one can strive to, an opposite to the self, an opposite to Christ. If billions of people have strived towards emulating this apex for the last 2,000 years, what must logically follow is an equal and opposite striving. That opposite is symbolized and anticipated in the symbol of the Antichrist 